2: Part fourteen of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part fourteen SAVED A Life One day during the Black Hawk War, a poor old Indian came into the camp with a paper of safe conduct from General Lewis Cass in his possession the members of lincoln's company were greatly exasperated by late indian barbarities among them the horrible murder of a number of women and children and were about to kill him they said the safe-conduct paper was a forgery and approached the old savage with muskets cocked to shoot him lincoln rushed forward struck up the weapons with his hands and standing in front of the victim declared to the indian that he should not be killed it was with great difficulty that the men could be kept from their purpose but the courage and firmness of lincoln thwarted them lincoln was physically one of the bravest of men as his company discovered lincoln played ball frank p blair of chicago tells an incident showing mr lincoln's love for children and how thoroughly he entered into all of their sports during the war my grandfather francis p blair senior lived at silver springs north of washington seven miles from the white house it was a magnificent place of four or five hundred acres with an extensive lawn in the rear of the house the grandchildren gathered there frequently there were eight or ten of us our ages ranging from eight to twelve years although i was but seven or eight years of age mr lincoln's visits were of such importance to us boys as to leave a clear impression on my memory he drove out to the place quite frequently we boys for hours at a time played town ball on the vast lawn and mr lincoln would join ardently in the sport i remember vividly how he ran with the children how long were his strides and how far his coat-tail stuck out behind and how we tried to hit him with the ball as he ran the bases he entered into the spirit of the play as completely as any of us and we invariably hailed his coming with delight his passes to richmond not honored a man called upon the president and solicited a pass for richmond well said the president i would be very happy to oblige if my passes were respected but the fact is sir i have within the past two years given passes to two hundred and fifty thousand men to go to richmond and not one has got there yet the applicant quietly and respectfully withdrew on his tiptoes public hangman for the united states a certain united states senator who believed that every man who believed in secession should be hanged asked the president what he intended to do when the war was over reconstruct the machinery of the government quickly replied lincoln you are certainly crazy was the senator's heated response you talk as if treason was not henceforth to be made odious but that the traitors cut-throats and authors of this war should not only go unpunished but receive encouragement to repeat their treason with impunity they should be hanged higher than haman sir yes higher than any malefactor the world has ever known the president was entirely unmoved but after a moment's pause put a question which all but drove his visitor insane now senator suppose that when this hanging arrangement has been agreed upon you accept the post of chief executioner if you will take the office i will make you a brigadier general and public hangman for the united states that would just about suit you wouldn't it i am a gentleman sir returned the senator and i certainly thought you knew me to be better than to believe me capable of doing such dirty work You are jesting, Mr. President." The President was extremely patient, exhibiting no sign of ire, and to this bit of temper on the part of the Senator responded, "'You speak of being a gentleman, yet you forget that in this free country all men are equal, the vagrant and the gentleman standing on the same ground when it comes to rights and duties, particularly in time of war.' Therefore, being a gentleman, as you claim, and a law-abiding citizen, I trust, you are not exempt from doing even the dirty work at which your high spirit revolts. This was too much for the senator, who quitted the room abruptly, and never again showed his face in the White House, while Lincoln occupied it. He won't bother me again, was the President's remark as he departed. Few but boisterous lincoln was a very quiet man and went about his business in a quiet way making the least possible noise he heartily disliked those boisterous people who were constantly deluging him with advice and shouting at the tops of their voices whenever they appeared at the white house these noisy people create a great clamor said he one day in conversation with some personal friends and remind me by the way of a good story i heard out in illinois while i was practicing or trying to practice some law there i will say though that i practiced more law than i ever got paid for a fellow who lived just out of town on the bank of a large marsh conceived a big idea in the money-making line he took it to a prominent merchant and began to develop his plans and specifications there are at least 10 million frogs in that marsh near me and I'll just arrest a couple of carloads of them and hand them over to you. You can send them to the big cities and make lots of money for both of us. Frog's legs are great delicacies in the big towns and not very plentiful. It won't take me more than two or three days to pick them. They make so much noise my family can't sleep and by this deal I'll get rid of a nuisance and gather in some cash." the merchant agreed to the proposition promised the fellow he would pay him well for the two carloads two days passed then three and finally two weeks were gone before the fellow showed up again carrying a small basket he looked weary and done up and he wasn't talkative a bit he threw the basket on the counter with the remark there's your frogs you haven't got two carloads in that basket have you inquired the merchant no was the reply and there ain't no two carloads in all this blasted world i thought you said there were at least ten millions of em in that marsh near you according to the noise they made observed the merchant your people couldn't sleep because of em well said the fellow according to the noise they made there was i thought a hundred million of em but when i had waited and swum that thar marsh day and night for two blessed weeks i couldn't harvest but six there's two or three left yet and the marsh is as noisy as it used to be we haven't catched up on any of our lost sleep yet now you can have these here six and i won't charge you a cent fur em you can see by this little yarn remarked the president that these boisterous people make too much noise in proportion to their numbers keep pegging away being asked one time by an anxious visitor as to what he would do in certain contingencies provided the rebellion was not subdued after three or four years of effort on the part of the government oh replied the president there is no alternative but to keep pegging away beware of the tale after the issue of the emancipation proclamation governor morgan of new york was at the white house one day when the president said i do not agree with those who say that slavery is dead we are like whalers who have been long on a chase we have at last got the harpoon into the monster but we must now look how we steer or with one flop of his tail he will yet send us all into eternity lincoln's dream president lincoln was depicted as a headsman in a cartoon printed in frank leslie's illustrated newspaper on february fourteenth eighteen sixty three the title of the picture being lincoln's dreams or there's a good time coming the cartoon reproduced here represents on the right the union generals who had been defeated by the confederates in battle and had suffered decapitation in consequence mcdowell who lost at bull run mcclellan who failed to take richmond when within twelve miles of that city and no opposition comparatively and burnside who was so badly whipped at fredericksburg to the left of the block where the president is standing with the bloody axe in his hand are shown the members of the cabinet secretary of state seward secretary of war stanton secretary of the navy wells and others each awaiting his turn this part of the dream was never realized however as the president did not decapitate any of his cabinet officers It was the idea of the cartoonist to hold Lincoln up as a man who would not countenance failure upon the part of subordinates, but visit the severest punishment upon those commanders who did not win victories. After Burnside's defeat at Fredericksburg, he was relieved by Hooker, who suffered disaster at Chancellorsville. Hooker was relieved by Meade, who won at Gettysburg, but was refused promotion because he did not follow up and crush Lee. Rosecrans was all but defeated at chickamauga and gave way to grant who of all the union commanders had never suffered defeat grant was lincoln's ideal fighting man and the old commander was never superseded there was no need of a story dr hovey of dansville new york thought he would call and see the president upon arriving at the white house he found the president on horseback ready for a start Approaching him, he said, President Lincoln, I thought I would call and see you before leaving the city, and hear you tell a story. The President greeted him pleasantly, and asked where he was from. From western New York? Well, that's a good enough country without stories, replied the President, and off he rode. Lincoln, a man of simple habits Lincoln's habits at the White House were as simple as they were at his old home in Illinois. He never alluded to himself as president or as occupying the presidency. His office he always designated as the place. "'Call me Lincoln,' said he to a friend. Mr. President had become so very tiresome to him. "'If you see a newsboy down the street, send him up this way,' said he to a passenger, as he stood waiting for the morning news at his gate. Friends cautioned him about exposing himself so openly in the midst of enemies but he never heeded them. He frequently walked the streets at night, entirely unprotected, and felt any check upon his movements a great annoyance. He delighted to see his familiar Western friends, and he gave them always a cordial welcome. He met them on the old footing, and fell at once into the accustomed habits of talk and storytelling. An old acquaintance with his wife visited Washington, mr and mrs lincoln proposed to these friends a ride in the presidential carriage it should be stated in advance that the two men had probably never seen each other with gloves on in their lives unless when they were used as protection from the cold the question of each lincoln at the white house and his friend at the hotel was whether he should wear gloves of course the ladies urged gloves but lincoln only put his in his pocket to be used or not according to the circumstances when the presidential party arrived at the hotel to take in their friends they found the gentleman overcome by his wife's persuasions very handsomely gloved the moment he took his seat he began to draw off the clinging kids while lincoln began to draw his on oh no 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 protested his friend tugging at his gloves it is none of my doings put up your gloves mr lincoln so the two old friends were on even and easy terms and had their ride after their old fashion his last speech President Lincoln was reading the draft of a speech. Edward, the conservative but dignified butler of the White House, was seen struggling with Tad and trying to drag him back from the window from which was waving a Confederate flag, captured in some fight, and given to the boy. Edward conquered, and Tad, rushing to find his father, met him coming forward to make as it proved his last speech. The speech began with these words, We meet this evening, not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. Having his speech written in loose leaves, and being compelled to hold a candle in the other hand, he would let the loose leaves drop to the floor one by one. Tad picked them up as they fell, and impatiently called for more as they fell from his father's hand. Forgot everything he knew before president lincoln while entertaining a few select friends is said to have related the following anecdote of a man who knew too much he was a careful painstaking fellow who always wanted to be absolutely exact and as a result he frequently got the ill-will of his less careful superiors during the administration of president jackson there was a singular young gentleman employed in the public post office in washington his name was g he was from tennessee the son of a widow a neighbor of the president on which account the old hero had a kind feeling for him and always got him out of difficulties with some of the higher officials to whom his singular interference was distasteful among other things it is said of him that while employed in the general post office on one occasion he had to copy a letter to major h a high official in answer to an application made by an old gentleman in virginia or pennsylvania for the establishment of a new post office the writer of the letter said the application could not be granted in consequence of the applicant's proximity to another office when the letter came into g s hand to copy being a great stickler for plainness he altered proximity to nearness to major h observed it and asked g why he altered his letter why replied g because i don't think the man would understand what you mean by proximity well said major h try him. put in the proximity again In a few days a letter was received from the applicant, in which he very indignantly said that his father had fought for liberty in the Second War for Independence, and he should like to have the name of the scoundrel who brought the charge of proximity, or anything else wrong, against him. "'There,' said G., "'did I not say so?' G. carried his improvements so far that Mr. Barry, the postmaster-general, said to him, "'I don't want you any longer. You know too much.' Poor G. went out, but his old friend got him another place. This time G.'s ideas underwent a change. He was one day very busy writing, when a stranger called in and asked him where the patent office was. "'I don't know,' said G.' "'Can you tell me where the Treasury Department is?' said the stranger. "'No,' said G. "'Nor the President's House?' "'No.' The stranger finally asked him if he knew where the Capitol was. "'No,' replied G. "'Do you live in Washington, sir?' "'Yes, sir,' said G. "'Good Lord, and don't you know where the Patent Office is, Treasury, President's House, and Capitol are?' "'Stranger,' said G. I was turned out of the Post Office for knowing too much.' I don't mean to offend in that way again i am paid for keeping this book i believe i know that much but if you find me knowing anything more you may take my head good morning said the stranger lincoln believed in education that every man may receive at least a moderate education and thereby be enabled to read the histories of his own and other countries by which he may duly appreciate the value of our free institutions appears to be an object of vital importance even on this account alone to say nothing of the advantages and satisfaction to be derived from all being able to read the scriptures and other works both of a religious and moral nature for themselves For my part, I desire to see the time when education, by its means, morality, sobriety, enterprise, and integrity, shall become much more general than at present, and should be gratified to have it in my power to contribute something to the advancement of any measure which might have a tendency to accelerate the happy period. Lincoln on the Dred Scott Decision in a speech at springfield illinois june twenty sixth eighteen fifty seven lincoln referred to the decision of chief justice roger b taney of the united states supreme court in the dred scott case in this manner the chief justice does not directly assert but plainly assumes as a fact that the public estimate of the black man is more favorable now than it was in the days of the revolution in those days by common consent the spread of the black man's bondage in the new countries was prohibited but now congress decides that it will not continue the prohibition and the supreme court decides that it could not if it would in those days our declaration of independence was held sacred by all and thought to include all but now to aid in making the bondage of the negro universal and eternal it is assailed and sneered at and constructed and hawked at and torn till if its framers could rise from their graves they could not at all recognize it all the powers of earth seem combining against the slave mammon is after him ambition follows philosophy follows and the theology of the day is fast joining the cry lincoln made many notable speeches abraham lincoln made many notable addresses and speeches during his career previous to the time of his election to the presidency however beautiful in thought and expression as they are they were not appreciated by those who heard and read them until after the people of the united states and the world had come to understand the man who delivered them Lincoln had the rare and valuable faculty of putting the most sublime feeling into his speeches, and he never found it necessary to encumber his wisest, wittiest, and most famous sayings with a weakening mass of words. He put his thoughts into the simplest language, so that all might comprehend, and he never said anything which was not full of the deepest meanings. What Ailed the Boys mr roland diller who was one of mr lincoln's neighbors in springfield tells the following i was called to the door one day by the cries of children in the street and there was mr lincoln striding by with two of his boys both of whom were wailing aloud why mr lincoln what is the matter with the boys i asked just what's the matter with the whole world lincoln replied i've got three walnuts and each wants two Tad's confederate flag one of the prettiest incidents in the closing days of the civil war occurred when the troops marching home again passed in grand form if with well-worn uniforms and tattered bunting before the white house naturally an immense crowd had assembled on the streets the lawns porches balconies and windows even those of the executive mansion itself being crowded to excess a central figure was that of the president abraham lincoln who with bared head unfurled and waved our nation's flag in the midst of lusty cheers but suddenly there was an unexpected sight a small boy leaned forward and sent streaming to the air the banner of the boys in gray it was an old flag which had been captured from the confederates and which the urchin the president's second son Tad had obtained possession of, and considered an additional triumph, to unfurl on this all-important day. Vainly did the servant who had followed him to the window plead with him to desist. No, Master Tad, pet of the White House, was not to be prevented from adding to the loyal demonstration of the hour. To his surprise, however, the crowd viewed it differently. Had it floated from any other window in the Capitol that day, no doubt it would have been the target of contempt and abuse. But when the President, understanding what had happened, turned with a smile on his grand, plain face and showed his approval by a gesture and expression, cheer after cheer rent the air. Called Blessings on the American Women president lincoln attended a ladies fair for the benefit of the union soldiers at washington march sixteenth eighteen sixty four in his remarks he said i appear to say but a word this extraordinary war in which we are engaged falls heavily upon all classes of people but the most heavily upon the soldiers for it has been said all that a man hath will he give for his life and while all contribute of their substance the soldier puts his life at stake and often yields it up in his country's cause the highest merit then is due the soldiers in this extraordinary war extraordinary developments have manifested themselves such as have not been seen in former wars and among these manifestations nothing has been more remarkable than these fairs for the relief of suffering soldiers and their families and the chief agents in these fairs are the women of america i am not accustomed to the use of language of eulogy i have never studied the art of paying compliments to women but I must say that if all that has been said by orators and poets since the creation of the world in praise of women were applied to the women of America, it would not do them justice for their conduct during the war. I will close by saying, God bless the women of America. Lincoln's Order number 252 after the united states had enlisted former negro slaves as soldiers to fight alongside the northern troops for the maintenance of the integrity of the union so great was the indignation of the confederate government that president davis declared he would not recognize blacks captured in battle and in uniform as prisoners of war this meant that he would have them returned to their previous owners have them flogged and fined for running away from their masters or even shot, if he felt like it. This attitude of the President of the Confederate States of America led to the promulgation of President Lincoln's famous Order No. 252, which in effect was a notification to the commanding officers of the Southern forces that if Negro prisoners of war were not treated as such, the Union commanders would retaliate harper's weekly of august fifteenth eighteen sixty three contained a clever cartoon which we reproduce representing president lincoln holding the south by the collar while old abe shouts the following words of warning to jeff davis who cat a 9 tails in hand is in pursuit of a terrified little negro boy mr lincoln look here jeff davis if you lay a finger on that boy to hurt him i'll lick this ugly cub of yours within an inch of his life much to the surprise of the confederates the negro soldiers fought valiantly they were fearless when well led obeyed orders without hesitation were amenable to discipline and were eager and anxious at all times to do their duty in battle they were formidable opponents and in using the bayonet were the equal of the best-trained troops. The Southerners hated them beyond power of expression. Talked to the Negroes of Richmond The President walked through the streets of Richmond without a guard except a few seamen, in company with his son Tad and Admiral Porter on April 4, 1865, the day following the evacuation of the city colored people gathered about him on every side eager to see and thank their liberator mr lincoln addressed the following remarks to one of these gatherings my poor friends you are free free as air you can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it it will come to you no more liberty is your birthright god gave it to you as he gave it to others and it is a sin that you have been deprived of it for so many years But you must try to deserve this priceless boon let the world see that you merit it and are able to maintain it by your good work don't let your joy carry you into excesses learn the laws and obey them obey god's commandments and thank him for giving you liberty for to him you owe all things there now let me pass on i have but little time to spare I want to see the capital and must return at once to Washington, to secure to you that liberty which you seem to prize so highly. Abe added a saving clause. Lincoln fell in love with Miss Mary S. Owens about 1833 or so, and while she was attracted toward him, she was not passionately fond of him. Lincoln's letter of proposal of marriage, sent by him to Miss Owens, while singular unique and decidedly unconventional was certainly not very ardent he after the fashion of the lawyer presented the matter very cautiously and pleaded his own cause then presented her side of the case advised her not to do it and agreed to abide by her decision miss owens respected lincoln but promptly rejected him really very much to abe's relief how jack was done up not far from new salem illinois at a place called clary's grove a gang of frontier ruffians had established headquarters and the champion wrestler of the grove was jack armstrong a bully of the worst type learning that abraham was something of a wrestler himself jack sent him a challenge at that time and in that community a refusal would have resulted in social and business ostracism not to mention the stigma of cowardice which would attach it was a great day for new salem and the grove when lincoln and armstrong met settlers within a radius of fifty miles flocked to the scene and the wagers laid were heavy and many Armstrong proved a weakling in the hands of the powerful Kentuckian, and Jack's adherents were about to mob Lincoln when the latter's friend saved him from probable death by rushing to the rescue. End of Part 14. Part fifteen of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain part fifteen angels couldn't swear it right the president was once speaking about an attack made on him by the congressional committee on the conduct of the war for a certain alleged blunder in the southwest the matter involved being one which had fallen directly under the observation of the army officer to whom he was talking who possessed official evidence completely upsetting all the conclusions of the committee might it not be well for me queried the officer to set this matter right in a letter to some paper stating the facts as they actually transpired oh no replied the president at least not now if i were to try to read much less answer all the attacks made on me this shop might as well be closed for any other business i do the very best i know how the very best i can and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, ten thousand angels swearing I was right would make no difference. Must go, and go to stay. Ward Hill Layman was President Lincoln's cerebrus, his watchdog, guardian, friend, companion, and confidant some days before lincoln's departure for washington to be inaugurated he wrote to layman at bloomington that he desired to see him at once he went to springfield and lincoln said hill on the eleventh i go to washington and i want you to go along with me our friends have already asked me to send you as consul to paris you know i would cheerfully give you anything for which our friends may ask or which you may desire But it looks as if we might have war in that case i want you with me in fact i must have you so get yourself ready and come along it will be handy to have you around if there is to be a fight i want you to help me to do my share of it as you have done in times past you must go and go to stay this is layman's version of it lincoln wasn't buying nominations to a party who wished to be empowered to negotiate reward for promises of influence in the chicago convention 1860, mr lincoln replied no gentlemen i have not asked the nomination and i will not buy it with pledges if i am nominated and elected i shall not go into the presidency as the tool of this man or that man or as the property of any factor or clique he envied the soldier at the front after some very bad news had come in from the army in the field lincoln remarked to schuyler colfax how willingly would i exchange places to-day with the soldier who sleeps on the ground in the army of the potomac don't trust too far in the campaign of eighteen fifty two lincoln in reply to douglas's speech wherein he spoke of confidence in providence replied let us stand by our candidate general scott as faithfully as he has always stood by our country and i much doubt if we do not perceive a slight abatement of judge douglas's confidence in providence as well as the people i suspect that confidence is not more firmly fixed with the judge than it was with the old woman whose horse ran away with her in a buggy she said she trusted in providence till the britchin broke and then she didn't know what on earth to do he'd uh, risk the dictatorship lincoln's great generosity to his leaders was shown when in january eighteen sixty three he assigned fighting joe hooker to the command of the army of the potomac hooker had believed in a military dictatorship and it was an open secret that mcclellan might have become such had he possessed the nerve. Lincoln, however, was not bothered by this prattle, as he did not think enough of it to relieve McClellan of his command. The President said to Hooker, "'I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain success can be dictators.' What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. Lincoln also believed Hooker had not given cordial support to General Burnside when he was in command of the army. In Lincoln's own peculiarly plain language, he told Hooker that he had done a great wrong to the country and to a most meritorious and honorable brother officer. Major General, I reckon, at one time the president had the appointment of a large additional number of brigadier and major generals among the immense number of applications mr lincoln came upon one wherein the claims of a certain worthy not in the service at all for a generalship were glowingly set forth but the applicant didn't specify whether he wanted to be brigadier or major-general the president observed this difficulty and solved it by a lucid endorsement THE CLERK, ON RECEIVING THE PAPER AGAIN, FOUND WRITTEN ACROSS ITS BACK, MAJOR GENERAL, I RECKON, A LINCOLN WOULD SEE THE TRACKS JUDGE Erndon, LINCOLN'S LAW PARTNER, SAID HE NEVER SAW LINCOLN MORE CHEERFUL THAN ON THE DAY PREVIOUS TO HIS DEPARTURE FROM SPRINGFIELD FOR WASHINGTON, AND JUDGE GILLESPIE, WHO VISITED HIM A FEW DAYS EARLIER, FOUND HIM IN EXCELLENT SPIRITS i told him that i believed it would do him good to get down to washington said herndon i know it will lincoln replied i only wish i could have got there to lock the door before the horse was stolen but when i get to the spot i can find the tracks abe give her a sure tip If all the days Lincoln attended school were added together, they would not make a single year's time, and he never studied grammar or geography or any of the higher branches. His first teacher in Indiana was Hazel Dorsey, who opened a school in a log schoolhouse a mile and a half from the Lincoln cabin. The building had holes for windows, which were covered over, with greased paper to admit light the roof was just high enough for a man to stand erect it did not take long to demonstrate that abe was superior to any scholar in his class his next teacher was andrew crawford who taught in the winter of eighteen twenty two to three in the same little schoolhouse abe was an excellent speller and it is said that he liked to show off his knowledge especially if he could help out his less fortunate schoolmates One day the teacher gave out the word defied. A large class was on the floor, but it seemed that no one would be able to spell it. The teacher declared he would keep the whole class in all day and night if defied was not spelled correctly. When the word came round to Katie Roby, she was standing where she could see young Abe. She started D E F and while trying to decide whether to spell the word with an I or a Y, she noticed that Abe had his finger on his eye and a smile on his face, and instantly took the hint. She spelled the word correctly, and school was dismissed. The President Had Knowledge of Him Lincoln never forgot anyone or anything. At one of the afternoon receptions at the White House, A stranger shook hands with him and as he did so remarked casually that he was elected to congress about the time mr lincoln's term as representative expired which happened many years before yes said the president you are from mentioning the state i remember reading of your election in a newspaper one morning on a steamboat going down to mount vernon at another time a gentleman addressed him saying i presume mr president you have forgotten me no was the prompt reply your name is flood i saw you last twelve years ago at naming the place and the occasion i am glad to see he continued that the flood goes on subsequent to his reelection a deputation of bankers from various sections were introduced one day by the secretary of the treasury After a few moments of general conversation, Lincoln turned to one of them and said, "'Your district did not give me so strong a vote at the last election as it did in 1860.' "'I think, sir, that you must be mistaken,' replied the banker. "'I have the impression that your majority was considerably increased at the last election.' "'No,' rejoined the President. "'You fell off about 600 votes.' then taking down from the bookcase the official canvas of eighteen sixty and eighteen sixty four he referred to the vote of the district named and proved to be quite right in his assertion only half a man as president lincoln arm in arm with ex-president buchanan entered the capitol and passed into the senate chamber filled to overflowing with senators members of the diplomatic corps and visitors the contrast between the two men struck every observer mr buchanan was so withered and bowed with age wrote george w julian of indiana who was among the spectators that in contrast with the towering form of mr lincoln he seemed little more than half a man grant congratulated lincoln as soon as the result of the presidential election of eighteen sixty four was known general grant telegraphed from city point his congratulations and added that the election having passed off quietly is a victory worth more to the country than a battle won brutus and caesar london punch persistently maintained throughout the war for the union that the question of what to do with the blacks was the most bothersome of all the problems president lincoln had to solve punch thought the rebellion had its origin in an effort to determine whether there should or should not be slavery in the united states and was fought with this as the main end in view punch of august fifteenth eighteen sixty three contained the cartoon reproduced on this page the title being brutus and caesar president lincoln was pictured as brutus while the ghost of caesar which appeared in the tent of the american brutus during the dark hours of the night was represented in the shape of a husky and anything but ghost-like african whose complexion would tend to make the blackest tar look like skimmed milk in comparison this was the text below the cartoon, from the American edition of Shakespeare. The tent of Brutus, Lincoln, Knight, enter the ghost of Caesar. Brutus, while now do tell who's you. Caesar, I am the Massa Lincoln, this child am awful impressionable punch's cartoons were decidedly unfriendly in tone toward president lincoln some of them being not only objectionable in the display of bad taste but offensive and vulgar it is true that after the assassination of the president punch in illustrations paid marked and deserved tribute to the memory of the great emancipator but it had little that was good to say of him while he was among the living and engaged in carrying out the great work for which he was destined to win eternal fame how stanton got into the cabinet president lincoln well aware of stanton's unfriendliness was surprised when secretary of the treasury chase told him that stanton had expressed the opinion that the arrest of the confederate commissioners mason and slidell was legal and justified by international law the president asked secretary chase to invite stanton to the white house and stanton came mr lincoln thanked him for the opinion he had expressed and asked him to put it in writing stanton complied the president read it carefully and after putting it away astounded stanton by offering him the portfolio of war stanton was a democrat had been one of the president's most persistent vilifiers and could not realize at first that lincoln meant what he said he managed however to say i am both surprised and embarrassed mr president and would ask a couple of days to consider this most important matter lincoln fully understood what was going on in stanton's mind and then said this is a very critical period in the life of the nation mr stanton as you are well aware and i well know you are as much interested in sustaining the government as myself or any other man this is no time to consider mere party issues the life of the nation is in danger i need the best councillors around me i have every confidence in your judgment and have concluded to ask you to become one of my counsellors the office of the secretary of war will soon be vacant and i am anxious to have you take mr cameron's place stanton decided to accept abe like his father abe lincoln's father was never at a loss for an answer An old neighbor of Thomas Lincoln, Abe's father, was passing the Lincoln farm one day, when he saw Abe's father grubbing up some hazelnut bushes, and said to him, Why, Grandpap, I thought you wanted to sell your farm. And so I do, he replied, but I ain't going to let my farm know it. Abe's just like his father, the old ones would say. No Moon At All one of the most notable of lincoln's law cases was that in which he defended william d armstrong charged with murder the case was one which was watched during its progress with intense interest and had a most dramatic ending the defendant was the son of jack and hannah armstrong the father was dead but hannah who had been very motherly and helpful to lincoln during his life at new salem was still living and asked lincoln to defend him young armstrong had been a wild lad and was often in bad company the principal witness had sworn that he saw young armstrong strike the fatal blow the moon being very bright at the time lincoln brought forward the almanac which showed that at the time the murder was committed there was no moon at all In his argument, Lincoln's speech was so feelingly made that at its close all the men in the jury-box were in tears. It was just half an hour when the jury returned a verdict of acquittal. Lincoln would accept no fee except the thanks of the anxious mother. Abe, a superb mimic Lincoln's reading in his early days embraced a wide range. He was particularly fond of all stories containing fun, wit, and humor, and every one of these he came across he learned by heart, thus adding to his personal store. He improved as a reciter and retailer of the stories he had read and heard, and as the reciter of tales of his own invention, and he had ready and eager auditors judge herndon in his abraham lincoln relates that as a mimic lincoln was unequaled an old neighbor said his laugh was striking such awkward gestures belonged to no other man they attracted universal attention from the old and sedate down to the schoolboy then in a few moments he was as calm and thoughtful as a judge on the bench and as ready to give advice on the most important matters fun and gravity grew on him alike why he was called honest abe during the year lincoln was in denton offutt's store at new salem that gentleman whose business was somewhat widely and unwisely spread about the country ceased to prosper in his finances and finally failed the store was shut up the mill was closed and abraham lincoln was out of business the year had been one of great advance in many respects he had made new and valuable acquaintances read many books mastered the grammar of his own tongue won multitudes of friends and became ready for a step still further in advance those who could appreciate brains respected him and those whose ideas of a man related to his muscles were devoted to him it was while he was performing the work of the store that he acquired the sobriquet of honest abe a characterization he never dishonored and an abbreviation that he never outgrew he was judge arbitrator referee umpire authority in all disputes games and matches of man flesh horse flesh a pacificator in all quarrels everybody's friend the best-natured the most sensible the most informed the most modest and unassuming the kindest gentlest roughest strongest best fellow in all new salem and the region round about abe's name remained on the sign enduring friendship and love of old associations were prominent characteristics of president lincoln when about to leave springfield for washington he went to the dingy little law office which had sheltered his saddest hours he sat down on the couch and said to his law partner judge herndon billy you and i have been together for more than twenty years and have never passed a word will you let my name stay on the old sign until i come back from washington the tears started to herndon's eyes he put out his hand mr lincoln said he i never will have any other partner while you live and to the day of assassination all the doings of the firm were in the name of lincoln and herndon very homely at first sight early in january eighteen sixty one colonel alex k mcclure of philadelphia received a telegram from president-elect lincoln asking him mcclure to visit him at springfield illinois colonel mcclure described his disappointment at first sight of lincoln in these words i went directly from the depot to lincoln's house and rang the bell which was answered by lincoln himself opening the door i doubt whether i wholly concealed my disappointment at meeting him tall gaunt ungainly ill-clad with a homeliness of manner that was unique in itself i confess that my heart sank within me as i remembered that this was the man chosen by a great nation to become its ruler in the gravest period of its history i remember his dress as if it were but yesterday snuff-coloured and slouchy pantaloons open black vest held by a few brass buttons straight or evening dress-coat with tightly fitting sleeves to exaggerate his long bony arms and all supplemented by an awkwardness that was uncommon among men of intelligence such was the picture i met in the person of abraham lincoln we sat down in his plainly furnished parlor and were uninterrupted during the nearly four hours that i remained with him and little by little as his earnestness sincerity and candour were developed in conversation i forgot all the grotesque qualities which so confounded me when i first greeted him the man to trust if a man is honest in his mind said lincoln one day long before he became president you are pretty safe in trusting him was gone there to be hitched abe's nephew or one of them related a story in connection with lincoln's first love anne rutledge and his subsequent marriage to miss mary todd this nephew was a plain everyday farmer and thought everything of his uncle whose greatness he quite thoroughly appreciated although he did not pose to any extreme as the relative of a president of the united states said he one day in telling his story us children, an we would heard Uncle Abe was a goin' to be married. Asked Grandma if Lincoln Abe never had had a gal afore, as she says, says he will. Well, Abe was never a hand know how to run round visitin' much or go with the gals either. But he did fall in love with Ann Rutledge, who lived out near Springfield. And after she died, he come home, and every time he'd talk about her, he cried dreadful. He never could talk o' her no how, but he was just crying, cry like a young feller. Once they told Grandma there was going to be hitched. They haven't promised each other, and that is all we ever heard about it, but so twas arter Uncle Abe had got over his mournin he was married to a woman which had lived down in Kentucky uncle Eb himself told us he was married the next time he came up to our place and we asked him why he didn't bring his wife up to see us he said she's very busy and can't come but we knowed better than that he was too proud to bring her up cause nothing would suit her nohow She wasn't raised the way we was and was different from us and we heard too she was proud as could be no and he never brought none of the children either But then, Uncle Abe, he wasn't to blame. We never thought he was stuck up. He proposed to save the Union. Replying to an editorial written by Horace Greeley, the President wrote, My paramount object is to save the Union, and not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it and if i could do it by freeing some and leaving others alone i would also do that what i do about slavery and the colored race i do because i believe it helps to save this union and what i forbear i forbear because i do not believe it would help to save the union i shall do less whenever i shall believe what i am doing hurts the cause and i shall do more whenever i believe doing more will help the cause the same old rum one of president lincoln's friends visiting at the white house was finding considerable fault with the constant agitation in congress of the slavery question he remarked that after the adoption of the emancipation policy he had hoped for something new there was a man down in maine said the president in reply who kept a grocery store and a lot of fellows used to loaf around for their toddy He only gave them New England rum, and they drank pretty considerable of it, but after a while they began to get tired of that, and kept asking for something new, something new, all the time. Well, one night, when the whole crowd were around, the grocer brought out his glasses, and says he, I got something new for you to drink, boys, now. Honor, Bright, said they. Honor, Bright, says he, and with that he sets out a jug. Bar says that's something new it's new england rum says he now remarked the president in conclusion i guess we're a good deal like that crowd and congress is a good deal like that storekeeper saved lincoln's life when mr lincoln was quite a small boy he met with an accident that almost cost him his life he was saved by austin golliher a young playmate Mr. Gollagher lived to be more than ninety years of age, and to the day of his death related with great pride his boyhood association with Lincoln. Yes, Mr. Gollagher once said, the story that I once saved Abraham Lincoln's life is true. He and I had been going to school together for a year or more, and had become greatly attached to each other. Then school disbanded on account of there being so few scholars, and we did not see each other much for a long while." One Sunday, my mother visited the Lincolns, and I was taken along. Abe and I played around all day. Finally, we concluded to cross the creek to hunt for some partridges, young Lincoln had seen the day before. The creek was swollen by a recent rain, and in crossing on the narrow foot log, Abe fell in. Neither of us could swim. I got a long pole and held it out to Abe, who grabbed it, and then I pulled him ashore. He was almost dead, and I was badly scared i rolled and pounded him in good earnest then i got him by the arms and shook him the water meanwhile pouring out of his mouth by this means i succeeded in bringing him to, and he was soon all right then a new difficulty confronted us if our mothers discovered our wet clothes they would whip us this we dreaded from experience and determined to avoid it it was june the sun was very warm and we soon dried our clothing by spreading it on the rocks about us we promised never to tell the story and i never did until after lincoln's tragic end would not recall a single word in conversation with some friends at the white house on new year's evening eighteen sixty three president lincoln said concerning his emancipation proclamation the signature looks a little tremulous for my hand was tired but my resolution was firm i told them in september if they did not return to their allegiance and cease murdering our soldiers i would strike at this pillar of their strength and now the promise shall be kept and not one word of it will i ever recall old broom best after all during the time the enemies of general grant were making their bitterest attacks upon him and demanding that the president remove him from command frank leslie's illustrated newspaper of june thirteenth eighteen sixty three came out with the cartoon reproduced the text printed under the picture was to the following effect old abe greeley be hanged i want no more new brooms i began to think that the worst thing about my old ones was in not being handled right the old broom the president holds in his hand is labelled grant the latter had captured fort donelson defeated the confederates at shiloh luca port gibson and other places and had vicksburg in his iron grasp when the demand was made that lincoln depose grant the president answered i can't spare this man he fights grant never lost a battle and when he found the enemy he always fought him mcclellan burnside pope and hooker had been found wanting so lincoln pinned his faith to grant as noted in the cartoon horace greeley editor of the new york tribune thurlow weed and others wanted lincoln to try some other new brooms but president lincoln was wearied with defeats and wanted a few victories to offset them therefore he stood by grant who gave him victories End of part fifteen. Part sixteen of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part sixteen. God with a little g. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen, he will be good, but God knows when. These lines were found written in young Lincoln's own hand at the bottom of a page whereon he had been ciphering. Lincoln always wrote a clear, regular fist. In this instance, he evidently did not appreciate the sacredness of the name of the deity when he used a little g. Lincoln once said he did not remember the time when he could not write. Abe's Log it was the custom in sangamon for the men-folks to gather at noon and in the evening when resting in a convenient lane near the mill they had rolled out a long peeled log on which they lounged while they whittled and talked lincoln had not been long in sangamon before he joined this circle at once he became a favorite by his jokes and good humor as soon as he appeared at the assembly ground the men would start him to story-telling So irresistibly droll were his yarns that whenever he'd end up in his unexpected way, the boys on the log would whoop and roll off. The result of the rolling off was to polish the log like a mirror. The men, recognizing Lincoln's part in this polishing, christened their seat Abe's log. Long after Lincoln had disappeared from Sangamon, Abe's log remained, and until it had rotted away, people pointed it out, and repeated the droll stories of the stranger it was a fine fizzle president lincoln in company with general grant was inspecting the dutch gapped canal at city point grant do you know what this reminds me of out in springfield illinois there was a blacksmith who not having much to do took a piece of soft iron and attempted to weld it into an agricultural implement but discovered that the iron would not hold out then he concluded it would make a claw hammer but having too much iron attempted to make an axe but decided after working a while that there was not enough iron left finally becoming disgusted He filled the forge full of coal and brought the iron to a white heat. Then, with his tongs, he lifted it from the bed of coals, and, thrusting it into a tub of water nearby, exclaimed, Well, if I can't make anything else of you, I will make a fizzle somehow. I was afraid that was about what we had done with the Dutch Gap Canal, said General Grant. A teetotaler when lincoln was in the black hawk war as captain the volunteer soldiers drank in with a delight the jests and stories of the tall captain aesop's fables were given a new dress and the tales of the wild adventures that he had brought from kentucky and indiana were many but his inspiration was never stimulated by recourse to the whiskey jug when his grateful and delighted auditors pressed this on him he had one reply thank you i never drink it not to open shop there president lincoln was passing down pennsylvania avenue in washington one day when a man came running after him hailed him and thrust a bundle of papers in his hands it angered him not a little and he pitched the papers back saying i'm not going to open shop here we have liberty of all kinds Lincoln delivered a remarkable speech at Springfield, Illinois, when but twenty-eight years of age, upon the liberty possessed by the people of the United States. In part, he said, In the great journal of things happening under the sun, we, the American people, find our account running under date of the nineteenth century of the Christian era we find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the finest portion of the earth as regards extent of territory fertility of soil and salubrity of climate we find ourselves under the government of a system of political institutions conducing more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any of which history of former times tells us we when mounting the stage of existence found ourselves the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings we toiled not in the acquisition or establishment of them they are a legacy bequeathed to us by a once hardy brave and patriotic but now lamented and departed race of ancestors theirs was the task and nobly did they perform it to possess themselves us of this goodly land to uprear upon its hills and valleys a political edifice of liberty and equal rights tis ours to transmit these the former unprofaned by the foot of an intruder the latter undecayed by the lapse of time and untorn by usurpation to the generation that fate shall permit the world to know this task gratitude to our fathers justice to ourselves duty to posterity all imperatively require us faithfully to perform how then shall we perform it at what point shall we expect the approach of danger shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow never all the armies of europe asia and africa combined with all the treasures of the earth our own excepted in their military chest with a bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the ohio or make a track on the blue ridge in a trial of a thousand years at what point then is this approach of danger to be expected i answer if ever it reach us it must spring up amongst us it cannot come from abroad if destruction be our lot we must ourselves be its author and finisher as a nation of freemen we must live through all time or die by suicide i hope i am not over wary but if i am not there is even now something of ill omen amongst us i mean the increasing disregard for law which pervades the country the disposition to substitute the wild and furious passions in lieu of the sober judgment of courts and the worse than savage mobs for the executive ministers of justice this disposition is awfully fearful in any community and that it now exists in ours though grating to our feelings to admit it it would be a violation of truth and an insult to deny accounts of outrages committed by mobs form the everyday news of the times they have pervaded the country from new england to louisiana they are neither peculiar to the eternal snows of the former nor the burning sun of the latter they are not the creatures of climate neither are they confined to the slaveholding or non-slaveholding states alike they spring up among the pleasure-hunting southerners and the order-loving citizens of the land of steady habits whatever then their cause may be it is common to the whole country many great and good men sufficiently qualified for any task they may undertake may ever be found whose ambition would aspire to nothing beyond a seat in congress a gubernatorial or presidential chair but such belong not to the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle what think you these places would satisfy an alexander a caesar or a napoleon never towering genius disdains a beaten path it seeks regions hitherto unexplored it seeks no distinction in adding story to story upon the monuments of fame erected to the memory of others it denies that it is glory enough to serve under any chief it scorns to tread in the footpaths of any predecessor however illustrious it thirsts and burns for distinction and if possible it will have it whether at the expense of emancipating the slaves or enslaving freemen another reason which once was but which to the same extent is now no more has done much in maintaining our institutions thus far i mean the powerful influence which the interesting scenes of the revolution had upon the passions of the people as distinguished from their judgment but these histories are gone they can be read no more forever they were a fortress of strength but what the invading foemen could never do the silent artillery of time has done the leveling of the walls they were a forest of giant oaks but the all resisting hurricane swept over them and left only here and there a lone trunk despoiled of its verdure shorn of its foliage unshading and unshaded to murmur in a few more gentle breezes and to combat with its mutilated limbs a few more rude storms then to sink and be no more they were the pillars of the temple of liberty and now that they have crumbled away that temple must fall unless we the descendants supply the places with pillars hewn from the same solid quarry of sober reason passion has helped us but can do so no more it will in future be our enemy reason cold calculating unimpassioned reason must furnish all the materials for our support and defence let those materials be moulded into general intelligence sound morality and in particular a reverence for the constitution and the laws and then our country shall continue to improve and our nation revering his name and permitting no hostile foot to pass or desecrate his resting-place shall be the first to hear the last trump that shall awaken our washington upon these let the proud fabric of freedom rest as the rock of its basis and as truly as has been said of the only greater institution the gates of hell shall not prevail against it tom corwin's latest story one of mr lincoln's warm friends was dr robert Bowl of lacon illinois telling of a visit he paid to the white house soon after mr lincoln's inauguration he said i found him the same lincoln as a struggling lawyer and politician that i did in washington as president of the united states yet there was a dignity and self-possession about him in his high official authority i paid him a second call in the evening he had thrown off his reserve somewhat and would walk up and down the room with his hands to his sides and laugh at the joke he was telling or at one that was told to him i remember one story he told to me on this occasion tom corwin of illinois had been down to alexandria virginia that day and had come back and told lincoln a story which pleased him so much that he broke out in a hearty laugh and said i must tell you tom corwin's latest tom met an old man at alexandria who knew george washington and he told tom that george washington often swore now corwin's father had always held the father of our country up as a faultless person and told his son to follow in his footsteps well said corwin when i heard that george washington was addicted to the vices and infirmities of man i felt so relieved that i just shouted for joy catch em and Cheatham, the lawyers on the circuit travelled by lincoln got together one night and tried him on the charge of accepting fees which tended to lower the established rates it was the understood rule that a lawyer should accept all the clients could be induced to pay the tribunal was known as the augmothorial court ward lehman his law partner at the time tells about it lincoln was found guilty and fined for his awful crime against the pockets of his brethren of the bar the fine he paid with good humor and then kept the crowd of lawyers in uproarious laughter until after midnight he persisted in his revolt however declaring that with his consent his firm should never during its life or after its dissolution deserve the reputation enjoyed by those shining lights of the profession catch em and cheat em a juryman's scorn lincoln had assisted in the prosecution of a man who had robbed his neighbors hen roosts jogging home along the highway with the foreman of the jury that had convicted the hen stealer he was complimented by lincoln on the zeal and ability of the prosecution and remarked why when the country was young and i was stronger than i am now i didn't mind packing off a sheep now and again but stealing hens the good man's scorn could not find words to express his opinion of a man who would steal hens he broke to win a lawyer who was a stranger to mr lincoln once expressed to general linder the opinion that mr lincoln's practice of telling stories to the jury was a waste of time don't lay that flat renunction to your soul linder answered lincoln is like tansy's horse he breaks to win wanted her children back on the third of january eighteen sixty three harper's weekly appeared with a cartoon representing columbia indignantly demanding of president lincoln and secretary of war Stanton that they restore to her those of her sons killed in battle Below the picture is the reading matter. Columbia, where are my 15,000 sons murdered at Fredericksburg? Lincoln, this reminds me of a little joke. Columbia, go tell your joke at Springfield. The Battle of Fredericksburg was fought on December 13, 1862, between General Burnside commanding the Army of the Potomac and General Lee's force the union troops time and again assaulted the heights where the confederates had taken position but were driven back with frightful losses the enemy being behind breastworks suffered comparatively little at the beginning of the fight the confederate line was broken but the result of the engagement was disastrous to the union cause burnside had one thousand one hundred and fifty two killed nine thousand one hundred and one wounded and three thousand two hundred and thirty four missing a total of thirteen thousand seven hundred and seventy one general lee's losses all told were not much more than five thousand men burnside had succeeded mcclellan in command of the army of the potomac mainly it was said through the influence of secretary of war Stanton three months before mcclellan had defeated lee at antietam the bloodiest battle of the war lee's losses footing up more than thirteen thousand men at fredericksburg burnside had about one hundred and twenty thousand men at antietam mcclellan had about eighty thousand it has been maintained that burnside should not have fought this battle the chances of success being so few six feet four at seventeen abe's school teacher crawford endeavored to teach his pupils some of the manners of the polite society of indiana eighteen twenty three or so this was a part of his system one of the pupils would retire and then come in as a stranger and another pupil would have to introduce him to all the members of the school in what was considered good manners as abe wore a linsey-woolsey shirt buckskin breeches, which were too short and very tight, and low shoes, and was tall and awkward, he no doubt created considerable merriment when his turn came. He was growing at a fearful rate. He was fifteen years of age, and two years later attained his full height of six feet four inches. Had respect for the eggs early in eighteen thirty one abe was one of the guests of honour at a boat launching he and two others having built the craft the affair was a notable one people being present from the territory surrounding a large party came from springfield with an ample supply of whiskey to give the boat and its builders a send-off it was a sort of bipartisan mass meeting but there was one prevailing spirit that born of rye and corn Speeches were made in the best of feeling, some in favor of Andrew Jackson and some in favor of Henry Clay. Abraham Lincoln, the cook, told a number of funny stories, and it is recorded that they were not of too refined a character to suit the taste of his audience. A slate-of-hand performer was present, and among other trips performed, he fried some eggs in Lincoln's hat judge herndon says as explanatory to the delay in passing up the hat for the experiment lincoln drolly observed it was out of respect for the eggs not care for my hat how was the milk upset william g green an old-time friend of lincoln was a student at illinois college and one summer brought home with him on a vacation richard yates afterwards governor of illinois and some other boys and in order to entertain them took them up to see lincoln he found him in his usual position and at his usual occupation flat on his back on a cellar door reading a newspaper this was the manner in which a president of the united states and a governor of illinois became acquainted with each other green says lincoln repeated the whole of burns and a whole quantity of shakespeare for the entertainment of the college boys and in return was invited to dine with them on bread and milk how he managed to upset his bowl of milk is not a matter of history but the fact is that he did so as is the further fact that green's mother who loved lincoln tried to smooth over the accident and relieve the young man's embarrassment pulled fodder for a book once abe borrowed weems life of washington from joseph crawford a neighbor abe devoured it read it and reread it and when asleep put it by him between the logs of the wall one night a rainstorm wet it through and ruined it i've no money said abe when reporting the disaster to crawford but i'll work it out all right was crawford's response you pull fodder for three days and the book is yourn abe pulled the fodder but he never forgave crawford for putting so much work upon him he never lost an opportunity to crack a joke at his expense and the name blue nose crawford abe applied to him stuck to him throughout his life praises his rival for office when mr lincoln was a candidate for the legislature it was the practice at that date in illinois for two rival candidates to travel over the district together the custom led to much good-natured raillery between them and in such contests lincoln was rarely if ever worsted he could even turn the generosity of a rival to account by his whimsical treatment on one occasion says mr weir a former resident of sangamon county he had driven out from springfield in company with a political opponent to engage in joint debate the carriage it seems belonged to his opponent in addressing the gathering of farmers that met them lincoln was lavish in praise of the generosity of his friend i am too poor to own a carriage he said but my friend has generously invited me to ride with him i want you to vote for me if you will but if not then vote for my opponent for he is a fine man. His extravagant and persistent praise of his opponent appealed to the sense of humor in his rural audience, to whom his inability to own a carriage was by no means a disqualification. One Thing Abe Didn't Love Lincoln admitted that he was not particularly energetic when it came to real hard work. My father, said he one day, taught me how to work, but not to love it i never did like to work and i don't deny it i'd rather read tell stories crack jokes talk laugh anything but work the modesty of genius the opening of the year eighteen sixty found mr lincoln's name freely mentioned in connection with the republican nomination for the presidency to be classed with seward chase mclean and other celebrities was enough to stimulate any illinois lawyer's pride but in mr lincoln's case if it had any such effect he was most artful in concealing it now and then some ardent friend an editor for example would run his name up to the masthead but in all cases he discouraged the attempt in regard to the matter you spoke of he answered one man who proposed his name i beg you will not give it a further mention seriously i do not think i am fit for the presidency why she married him there was a social at lincoln's house in springfield and abe introduced his wife to ward lehman his law partner Layman tells the story in these words after introducing me to mrs lincoln he left us in conversation i remarked to her that her husband was a great favourite in the eastern part of the state where i had been stopping yes she replied he is a great favourite everywhere he is to be president of the United States some day. If I had not thought so, I never would have married him, for you can see he is not pretty. But look at him. Doesn't he look as if he would make a magnificent president? Niagara Falls. Written by Abraham Lincoln. The following article on Niagara Falls in Mr. Lincoln's handwriting was found among his papers after his death: Niagara Falls by what mysterious power is it that millions and millions are drawn from all parts of the world to gaze upon niagara falls there is no mystery about the thing itself every effect is just as any intelligent man knowing the causes would anticipate without seeing it If the water moving onward in a great river reaches a point where there is a perpendicular jog of a hundred feet in descent in the bottom of the river, it is plain the water will have a violent and continuous plunge at that point. It is also plain the water, thus plunging, will foam and roar and send up a mist continuously, in which last, during sunshine, there will be perpetual rainbows. The mere physical of Niagara Falls is only this, yet this is really a very small part of that world's wonder its power to excite reflection and emotion is its great charm the geologist will demonstrate that the plunge or fall was once at lake ontario and thus worn its way back to its present position he will ascertain how fast it is wearing now and so get a basis for determining how long it has been wearing back from lake ontario and finally demonstrate by that that this world is at least fourteen thousand years old a philosopher of a slightly different turn will say niagara falls is only the lip of the basin out of which pours all the surplus water which rains down on two or three hundred thousand square miles of the earth's surface he will estimate with approximate accuracy the five hundred thousand tons of water fall with their full weight a distance of a hundred feet each minute thus exerting a force equal to the lifting of the same weight through the same space in the same time but still there is more it calls up the indefinite past when columbus first sought this continent when christ suffered on the cross when moses led israel through the red sea nay even when adam first came from the hand of his maker then as now niagara was roaring here the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of america have gazed on niagara as ours do now contemporary with the first race of men and older than the first man niagara is strong and fresh to-day as ten thousand years ago the mammoth and mastodon so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived have gazed on niagara in that long long time never still for a single moment never dried never froze never slept Never rested. End of part sixteen. Part seventeen of Lincoln's yarns and stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part seventeen, made it hot for Lincoln a lady relative who lived for two years with the lincolns said that mr lincoln was in the habit of lying on the floor with the back of a chair for a pillow when he read one evening when in this position in the hall a knock was heard at the front door and although in his shirt sleeves he answered the call two ladies were at the door whom he invited into the parlour notifying them in his open familiar way that he would uh, trot the womenfolk out mrs lincoln from an adjoining room witnessed the lady's entrance and overhearing her husband's jocose expression her indignation was so instantaneous she made the situation exceedingly interesting for him and he was glad to retreat from the house he did not return till very late at night and then slipped quietly in at a rear door. WOULDN'T HOLD TITLE AGAINST HIM During the rebellion, the Austrian minister to the United States government introduced to the president a count, a subject of the Austrian government, who was desirous of obtaining a position in the American army. Being introduced by the accredited minister of Austria, he required no further recommendation to secure the appointment but fearing that his importance might not be fully appreciated by the republican president the count was particular in impressing the fact upon him that he bore that title and that his family was ancient and highly respectable president lincoln listened with attention until this unnecessary commendation was mentioned then with a merry twinkle in his eye he tapped the aristocratic sprig of hereditary nobility on the shoulder in the most fatherly way as if the gentleman had made a confession of some unfortunate circumstance connected with his lineage for which he was in no way responsible and said never mind you shall be treated with just as much consideration for all that i will see to it that your bearing a title shan't hurt you only one life to live a young man living in kentucky had been enticed into the rebel army after a few months he became disgusted and managed to make his way back home soon after his arrival the union officer in command of the military stationed in the town had him arrested as a rebel spy and after a military trial he was condemned to be hanged president lincoln was seen by one of his friends from kentucky who explained his errand and asked for mercy oh yes i understand someone has been crying and worked upon your feelings and you have come here to work on mine his friend then went more into detail and assured him of his belief in the truth of the story after some deliberation mr lincoln evidently scarcely more than half convinced but still preferring to err on the side of mercy replied if a man had more than one life i think a little hanging would not hurt this one but after he is once dead we cannot bring him back no matter how sorry we may be so the boy shall be pardoned and a reprieve was given on the spot couldn't locate his birthplace while the celebrated artist hicks was engaged in painting mr lincoln's portrait just after the former's first nomination for the presidency, he asked the great statesman if he could point out the precise spot where he was born. Lincoln thought the matter over for a day or two, and then gave the artist the following memorandum. Springfield, Illinois, June 14, 1860. I was born February 12, 1809, in then Hardin County, Kentucky, at a point within the now county of La Rue a mile or a mile and a half from where rogston's mill now is my parents being dead and my own memory not serving i know no means of identifying the precise locality it was on nolan's creek a lincoln sambo was afeard in his message to congress in december eighteen sixty four just after his re-election president lincoln in his message of december sixth let himself out in plain unmistakable terms to the effect that the freedmen should never be placed in bondage again frank leslie's illustrated newspaper of december twenty fourth eighteen sixty four printed the cartoon we herewith reproduce the text underneath running in this way uncle abe sambo you are not handsome any more than myself but as to sending you back to your old master i'm not the man to do it and what's more i won't vice-president's message congress at the previous sitting had neglected to pass the resolution for the constitutional amendment prohibiting slavery but on the thirty first of january eighteen sixty five The resolution was finally adopted, and the United States Constitution soon had the new feature as one of its clauses, the necessary number of state legislatures approving it. President Lincoln regarded the passage of this resolution by Congress as most important, as the amendment, in his mind, covered whatever defects a rigid construction of the Constitution might find in his Emancipation Proclamation after the latter was issued negroes were allowed to enlist in the army and they fought well and bravely after the war in the reorganization of the regular army four regiments of colored men were provided for the ninth and tenth cavalry and the twenty-fourth and twenty-fifth infantry in the cartoon sambo has evidently been asking uncle abe as to the probability or possibility of his being again enslaved when money might be used. Some Lincoln enthusiast in Kansas with much more pretensions than power wrote him in March 1860, proposing to furnish a Lincoln delegation from the state to the Chicago Convention, and suggesting that Lincoln should pay the legitimate expenses of organizing, electing, and taking to the convention the promised Lincoln delegates. To this, Lincoln replied that, in the main the use of money is wrong but for certain objects in a political contest the use of some is both right and indispensable and he added if you shall be appointed a delegate to chicago i will furnish a hundred dollars to bear the expenses of the trip he heard nothing further from the kansas man until he saw an announcement in the newspapers that kansas had elected delegates and instructed them for seward abe was no beauty lincoln's military service in the black hawk war had increased his popularity at new salem and he was put up as a candidate for the legislature a y ellis describes his personal appearance at the time as follows he wore a mixed jean coat claw hammer style short in the sleeves and bob tailed in fact it was so short in the tail that he could not sit on it flax and tow linen pantaloons and a straw hat i think he wore a vest but do not remember how it looked he wore pot-metal boots he's just beautiful lincoln's great love for children easily won their confidence a little girl who had been told that the president was very homely was taken by her father to see the president at the white house lincoln took her upon his knee and chatted with her for a moment in his merry way when she turned to her father and exclaimed oh pa he isn't ugly at all he's just beautiful big enough hog for him to a curiosity seeker who desired a permit to pass the lines to visit the field of bull run after the first battle lincoln made the following reply a man in Cortland County raised a porker of such unusual size that strangers went out of their way to see it. One of them the other day met the old gentleman and inquired about the animal. Well, yes,' the old fellow said. "'I've got such a critter, my big un, but I guess I'll have to charge you about a shillin for lookin' at him.' The stranger looked at the old man for a minute or so, pulled out the desired coin, handed it to him, and started to go off hold on said the other don't you want to see the hog no said the stranger i have seen as big a hog as i want to see and you will find that fact the case with yourself if you should happen to see a few live rebels there as well as dead ones abe offers a speech for something to eat when lincoln's special train from springfield to washington reached the illinois state line there was a stop for dinner there was such a crowd that lincoln could scarcely reach the dining-room gentlemen said he as he surveyed the crowd if you will make me a little path so that i can get through and get something to eat i will make you a speech when i get back they understood each other when complaints were made to president lincoln by victims of secretary of war stanton's harshness rudeness and refusal to be obliging particularly in cases where secretary stanton had refused to honor lincoln's passes through the lines the president would often remark to this effect i cannot always be sure that permits given by me ought to be granted there is an understanding between myself and stanton that when i send a request to him which cannot consistently be granted he is to refuse to honor it this he sometimes does few fence rails left there won't be a tar barrel left in illinois tonight," said senator stephen a douglas in washington to his senatorial friends who asked him when the news of the nomination of lincoln reached them who is this man lincoln anyhow douglas was right not only the tar barrels but half the fences of the state of illinois went up in the fire of rejoicing the great snow of eighteen thirty thirty one in explanation of lincoln's great popularity d w bartlett in his life and speeches of abraham lincoln published in eighteen sixty makes this statement of abe's efficient service to his neighbors in the great snow of eighteen thirty thirty one the deep snow which occurred in eighteen thirty thirty one was one of the chief troubles endured by the early settlers of central and southern illinois its consequences lasted through several years the people were ill prepared to meet it as the weather had been mild and pleasant unprecedentedly so up to christmas when a snowstorm set in which lasted two days something never before known even among the traditions of the indians and never approached in the weather of any winter since the pioneers who came into the state then a territory in eighteen hundred say the average depth of snow was never previous to 1830, more than knee-deep to an ordinary man, while it was breast-deep all that winter. It became crusted over, so as in some cases to bear teams. Cattle and horses perished, the winter wheat was killed, the meager stock of provisions ran out, and during the three months' continuance of the snow, ice and continuous cold weather the most wealthy settlers came near starving while some of the poor ones actually did it was in the midst of such scenes that abraham lincoln attained his majority and commenced his career of bold and manly independence communication between house and house was often entirely obstructed for teams so that the young and strong men had to do all the travelling on foot carrying from one neighbor what of his store he could spare to another and bringing back in return something of his store sorely needed men living five ten twenty and thirty miles apart were called neighbors then young lincoln was always ready to perform these acts of humanity and was foremost in the councils of the settlers when their troubles seemed gathering like a thick cloud about them CREDITOR PAID DEBTOR'S DEBT A certain rich man in Springfield, Illinois, sued a poor attorney for $2.50, and Lincoln was asked to prosecute the case. Lincoln urged the creditor to let the matter drop, adding, "'You can make nothing out of him, and it will cost you a great deal more than the debt to bring suit.' The creditor was still determined to have his way, and threatened to seek some other attorney lincoln then said well if you are determined that suit should be brought i will bring it but my charge will be ten dollars the money was paid him and peremptory orders were given that the suit be brought that day after the client's departure lincoln went out of the office returning in about an hour with an amused look on his face asked what pleased him he replied well, i brought suit against blank, and then hunted him up and told him what i had done handed him half of the ten dollars and he went over to the squire's office he confessed judgment and paid the bill lincoln added that he didn't see any other way to make things satisfactory for his client as well as the other helped out the soldiers judge thomas b bryan of chicago a member of the union defense committee during the war related the following concerning the original copy of the emancipation proclamation i asked mr lincoln for the original draft of the proclamation said judge bryan for the benefit of our sanitary fair in eighteen sixty five he sent it and accompanied it with a note in which he said i had intended to keep this paper but if it will help the soldiers i give it to you the paper was put up at auction and brought three thousand dollars the buyer afterward sold it again to friends of mr lincoln at a greatly advanced price and it was placed in the rooms of the chicago historical society where it was burned in the great fire of eighteen seventy one every fellow for himself an elegantly dressed young virginian assured lincoln that he had done a great deal of hard manual labor in his time much amused at this solemn declaration lincoln said oh yes you virginians shed barrels of perspiration while standing off at a distance and superintending the work your slaves do for you it is different with us here it is every fellow for himself or he doesn't get there butcher knife boys at the polls when young lincoln had fully demonstrated that he was the champion wrestler in the county surrounding new salem the men of Dagang gang at clary's grove whose leader Abe had downed were his sworn political friends and allies their work at the polls was remarkably effective when the butcher knife boys the huge pawed boys and the half horse half alligator men declared for a candidate the latter was never defeated no second coming for springfield soon after the opening of congress in eighteen sixty one mister shannon from california made the customary call at the white house in the conversation that ensued mister shannon said mr president i met an old friend of yours in california last summer a mr campbell who had a good deal to say of your springfield life ah returned mr lincoln i am glad to hear of him campbell used to be a dry fellow in those days he continued for a time he was secretary of state one day during the legislative vacation a meek cadaverous-looking man with a white neckcloth introduced himself to him at his office and stating that he had been informed that mr c had the letting of the hall of representatives he wished to secure it if possible for a course of lectures he desired to deliver in springfield may i ask said the secretary what is to be the subject of your lectures certainly was the reply with a very solemn expression of countenance the course i wish to deliver is on the second coming of our lord it is of no use said c if you will take my advice you will not waste your time in this city it is my private opinion that if the lord has been in springfield once he will never come the second time how he won a friend j s moulton of chicago a master in chancery and influential in public affairs looked upon the candidacy of mr lincoln for president as something in the nature of a joke he did not rate the illinois man in the same class with the giants of the east in fact he had expressed himself as by no means friendly to the lincoln cause still he had been a good friend to lincoln and had often met him when the springfield lawyer came to chicago mr lincoln heard of moulton's attitude but did not see moulton until after the election when the president-elect came to chicago and was tendered a reception at one of the big hotels moulton went up in the line to pay his respects to the newly elected chief magistrate purely as a formality he explained to his companions as moulton came along the line mr lincoln grasped moulton's hand with his right and with his left took the master of chancery by the shoulder and pulled him out of the line you don't belong in that line moulton said mr lincoln you belong here by me everyone at the reception was a witness to the honoring of moulton from that hour every faculty that moulton possessed was at the service of the president a little act of kindness skillfully bestowed had won him and he stayed on to the end never sued a client if a client did not pay lincoln did not believe in suing for the fee when a fee was paid him his custom was to divide the money into two equal parts put the one part into his pocket and the other into an envelope labelled herndon's share the lincoln household goods it is recorded that when abe was born the household goods of his father consisted of a few cooking utensils a little bedding some carpenter tools and four hundred gallons of the fierce product of the mountain still running the machine one of the cartoon posters issued by the democratic national campaign committee in the fall of eighteen sixty four is given here it had the legend running the machine printed beneath the machine was secretary chase's greenback mill and the mill was turning out paper money by the million to satisfy the demands of greedy contractors uncle abe is pictured as about to tell one of his funny stories of which the scene reminds him secretary of war stanton is receiving a message from the front describing a great victory in which one prisoner and one gun were taken secretary of state seward is handing an order to a messenger for the arrest of a man who had called him a humbug the habeas corpus being suspended throughout the union at that period secretary of the navy wells the long-haired long-bearded man at the head of the table is figuring out a naval problem at the side of the table opposite uncle abe are seated two government contractors shouting for more greenbacks and at the extreme left is secretary of the treasury fessenden who succeeded chase when the latter was made chief justice of the united states supreme court who complains that he cannot satisfy the greed of the contractors for more greenbacks although he is grinding away at the mill day and night was boss when necessary lincoln was the actual head of the administration and whenever he chose to do so he controlled secretary of war stanton as well as the other cabinet ministers secretary stanton on one occasion said now mr president those are the facts and you must see that your order cannot be executed lincoln replied in a somewhat positive tone mr secretary i reckon you'll have to execute the order stanton replied with vigor mr president i cannot do it this order is an improper one and i cannot execute it lincoln fixed his eyes upon stanton and in a firm voice and accent that clearly showed his determination said mr secretary it will have to be done it was done rather starve than swindle ward layman once lincoln's law partner relates a story which places lincoln's high sense of honor in a prominent light in a certain case lincoln and layman being retained by a gentleman named scott layman put the fee at two hundred and fifty dollars and scott agreed to pay it says layman scott expected a contest but to his surprise the case was tried inside of twenty minutes our success was complete scott was satisfied and cheerfully paid over the money to me inside the bar lincoln looking on scott then went out and lincoln asked what did you charge that man i told him two hundred and fifty dollars said he layman that is all wrong the service was not worth that sum give him back at least half of it i protested that the fee was fixed in advance that scott was perfectly satisfied and had so expressed himself that may be retorted lincoln with a look of distress and of undisguised displeasure but i am not satisfied this is positively wrong go call him back and return half the money at least or i will not receive one cent of it for my share i did go and Scott was astonished when I handed back half the fee. This conversation had attracted the attention of the lawyers and the court. Judge David Davis, then on our circuit bench, afterwards Associate Justice on the United States Supreme bench, called Lincoln to him. The judge never could whisper, but in this instant he probably did his best at all events in attempting to whisper to lincoln he trumpeted his rebuke in about these words and in rasping tones that could be heard all over the courtroom lincoln i've been watching you and layman you are impoverishing this bar by your picky uni charges of fees and the lawyers have reason to complain of you you are now almost as poor as lazarus and if you don't make people pay you more for your service you will die as poor as job's turkey judge o l davis the leading lawyer in that part of the state promptly applauded this malediction from the bench but lincoln was immovable that money said he comes out of the pocket of a poor demented girl and i would rather starve than swindle her in this manner don't aim too high billy don't shoot too high aim lower and the common people will understand you lincoln once said to a brother lawyer they are the ones you want to reach at least they are the ones you ought to reach the educated and refined people will understand you anyway if you aim too high your idea will go over the heads of the masses and only hit those who need no hitting not much at rail splitting one who afterward became one of Lincoln's most devoted friends and adherents tells this story regarding the manner in which Lincoln received him when they met for the first time. After a comical survey of my fashionable toggery, my swallowtail coat, white neckcloth, and ruffled shirt, an astonishing outfit for a young limb of the law in that settlement, Lincoln said, "'Going to try your hand at the law, are you?' I should know at a glance that you were a Virginian, but I don't think you would succeed in splitting rails. That was my occupation at your age, and I don't think I've taken as much pleasure in anything else from that day to this. End of part 17.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.